Today on Against the Grain. Few things sound as American as choice. And in the United States, the freedom to send one's child outside of the traditional public school system is a choice that's been promoted aggressively since the legal end to segregation in schools. Scholar John Hale traces how the notion of school choice was used to fight against school desegregation by the likes of free market champion Milton Friedman and others. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. School choice, often subsidizing private schools with public money, has become widely available in this country, while the funding for public education has diminished ever more. In his book, The Choice We Face, How Segregation, Race, and Power Have Shaped America's Most Controversial Education Reform Movement, which is published by Beacon Press, John Hale examines how charter schools and other alternatives to traditional public schooling became so ubiquitous, tracing their genesis back to the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision that formally ended school segregation. He's professor of educational history at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I'd like to start, John, by asking you about the term school choice. What does that term encompass and what are its origins? Yeah, so school choice, you know, as you know, is a very broad term and it's used differently by different people, different sets of parents, different advocates. Uh, the, the, cho- the term school choice entails educational policies that determine how schools are open to the general public. It's a series or set of policies that establish a choice for parents. So you can choose to go to a charter school um, free of cost. You can choose to go to your local public school, for instance, uh, probably some of the most common form of choices. It also allows, school choices are also policies that allow people to propose a school and to have it adopted by a school board and then have it funded through public dollars. School choice can also be a type of school, such as a magnet school. It could be um, an advanced curriculum at your traditional public school. So it's myriad policies that aim at providing parents choice with the idea that by providing more choice, we increase competition and then we increase the sort of quality of education that we offer to students. To your question about the origins of school choice, there are a couple ways to approach it. Some more you know, pro-choice advocates look at a history and they say, we always had choice. We can go back to the 19th century and look at how constitutions were written and providing vouchers or you know, public support for private school and to say this is an element of choice. But generally speaking, those historians and education researchers have identified school choice as a policy that really develops after the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954 and the federal mandates to desegregate schools. We see school choice really blossom, if you will, during this time period after the Brown decision. Well, tell us about that moment and how the ruling to desegregate schools was followed by mass resistance by whites. What did that resistance look like? What forms did it take? So in 1954, there's there's not a topic. There's something that that there's not much that brings turmoil and and dissent and conflict and desegregation and, and school policy in the 1950s for, for parents, right? And it was a very tumultuous moment in United States history because on, on one hand, you have the NAACP and civil rights advocates who have been working for de- to desegregate schools for over, really over a century, uh, if you look at the legal history. So it's this moment where, where a segment of the population is, inc- is very excited to finally have the access to go to whatever school you wanted to. 
but the majority of, of, of Americans are generally lukewarm about the decision or they're aggressively hostile to the idea of desegregating schools. So it's a, it's a tumultuous time in history in terms of where, where we and how we attend schools and where we send our children to go to schools. But out of this, it really inspires massive resistance because when you desegregate schools, it, it, it's really confronting um, an evil of racialization, racist policy, and racial segregation in the United States. And it, it challenges that, it confronts it, it attempts to overturn that. So people invested in this racist system aggressively defend segregation at all costs. So massive resistance really uh, occurs throughout the country, primarily in the South, but we most certainly see this across the country, especially in, in, in large northern cities. And massive resistance is literally putting yourself in front of a schoolhouse, you know, infamously blocking the path of, of, of black students entering white schools. It, it's putting local police, like in Little Rock, blocking the way, um, uh, the entryway of black students going to the white schools. But there's also this, on the surface, less insidious notions of resistance. And this is using the courts and developing policies that sort of allow, or slow down rather, the, the process of desegregation. It allows you, it allows Southerners um, and nor Northern um, politicians as well, the legal means to avoid desegregation or to avoid full-scale desegregation. In school choice, it's then known as freedom of choice, develops as a way to circumvent federal orders to desegregate schools. Um, and that's where school choice really starts to rear its ugly head is it provides students, it provides policymakers a way to say, okay, we're going to allow everyone to choose where to go to school. You can just submit your application or go to this local school and enroll your child. And then the school board's going to determine, you know, where you're going to go to school. So everyone has the option according to freedom of school choice plans in the early 1960s. Everybody, regardless of race and religion, creed, gender abilities that are, can attend, can apply to go to a particular school or enroll their, their child. But it's up to the school board ultimately to determine if you're allowed access and entry into the school. Well, what that does, first, it, it, it puts the onus on black parents and parents of color to enroll their child. So it's on them to go to the white school and desegregate. And that's a tremendous ask. These are hostile spaces, white teachers, administrators, don't want children of color in their schools. So it's already a hostile environment. And two, it allows the school board incredible um, in, in incredible leverage in, in determining who gets in and who doesn't get in. So let's say you forgot or, or you didn't write the correct, or part of your address was, you know, was, was in, you couldn't read it, it was illegible. Or let's say that you didn't check the right box in terms of how many children you have or something, these technical, very minor details could, could really lead to your exclusion or rejection. And that was illegal. So that was just, you know, one of the many legal ways at the time to sort of circumvent desegregation. And that's where school choice starts. What option was there at the time for whites to flee into private schools? So that's an, another element of choice. Private schools have existed throughout time in the history of the United States. We've always had private education. In, in terms, our first school systems were essentially private and they've, they've been worked into the fabric of the American educational landscape since the founding of the United States. Um, when Brown v. Board of Education, uh, you know, when the decision was reached in 1954, privatization and private options increased dramatically. So essentially white parents and segregationists are looking to pull their children out of public schools that very well may be desegregated in the near future, and they begin to set up private schools. They begin to also set up voucher plans or state tuition plans where they're using public tax dollars, essentially drawn from the local property tax base, which funds public education in the United States, and using that money to fund tuitions to cover the cost of private education after the Brown decision. So in addition to freedom of choice plans, we also begin to see the development of a private school system 
and the means to use public money to support private schools. This today is generally known as vouchers, to use public money to supplement or to cover the entire cost of going to a private school. The term school choice evokes the libertarian right and you know the notions of unfettered freedom in the market. And, and hence, I'd like to ask you about the role that the University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman, a champion of the free market, played in formulating the idea of school choice. How did he envision it? And how did his ideas become so influential? So he envisioned the idea as part of his larger economic arguments against Keynesian economics, which is basically, essentially, you, know, we, we, you can earn your PhD in this field, but just essentially it's sort of um, arguing against strong, a strong federal government intervening in the economy, that the federal government set in regulations, um, it's sort of minimizing that federal or large, larger government role, and essentially in some ways privatizing the system or allowing individuals to sort of choose how they would like to, you know, spend their money or not, or, you know, to choose their own monetary policy, right? And so he envisioned school choice, was going to be school choice, as a way to apply these principles to the system of education, that this large, sprawling public bureaucracy is hindering um, the progress of our children and that to provide a better opportunity and better quality education for all our students, we need to sort of empower individuals at the local level to make that choice. That if we allow them to choose, instead of the government telling people where to go, that this will inherently prove education. So in other words, Milton Friedman envisions the public school system, not only outside of his, you know, um, the ivory tower, if you will, in Chicago, but across the United States, he envisions uh, the field of education to be a recipient of his ideas about how we can go about in reforming the entire system to empower individuals and in taking away that power from the federal government. So really, you know, he sees this as an opportunity to implement larger ideas, that this becomes the realm for him to articulate his vision, and this becomes a realm for him to sort of enact his vision for a better society, which, as you know, is based on libertarian principle of individuals' right to choose, uh, how they go about their financial affairs, but then also um, cutting back on large-scale government intervention, which in the 1950s and 1960s appears to be ever-increasing and to be, you know, really fighting against the individual's right to freedom. So he's intervening and using education as a way to sort of implement these larger principles. And of course, Friedman was based in Chicago and unlike a number of these other battles that took place in the South, Chicago then for him is seen as, as you put it, the Petri dish for school choice. Can you tell us about Chicago at the time that Milton Friedman is formulating his take on school choice and how that idea played out in the city? Yeah, so Friedman in Chicago, when he first publishes the articles in 1955, it's this article called um, The Role of Federal Government in Education. He later publishes this in his uh, very popular book, Capitalism and Freedom. But when he's writing this in 1955, Chicago is an, is literally, you know, on fire, right? Chicago is a very, and still to this day, very segregated city. And at the moment in the 1950s, for the past 10 years, the city is grappling with a, an increasingly black and brown population. And there's not enough housing, essentially. So black families and Latinx families are moving out of their segregated neighborhoods or, or attempting to move out. In other words, to live in residential areas that have been denied. They've been denied access to other residential areas through redlining, for instance, and other housing discriminatory policies. So when this starts to happen, when, when black families are moving into white neighborhoods, there's white mob violence, vigilante violence, there's pushback, there's unspoken codes, right? Coven, racial covenants, if you will, that attempt to sort of keep 
black families and Latinx families out of white neighborhoods. At the same time, whites families, they, they're seeing the writing on the wall and they're moving out to the suburbs. So the city, right, is erupting with this violence around trying to maintain these strict racial divisions that have existed for decades. And they're losing their sort of um, ability to do so. But the civil rights movement is taken off. There's a recent Brown decision. We, we, we see desegregation on the forefront, on the horizon. It's coming. And whites are panicking. They're, they're reacting violently, aggressively, trying to defend old lines of segregation. So when Friedman's proposing this in 1955, the city is going through a reckoning in terms of how, you know, what are we doing with these racial divisions? A lot of people like Dale are asking, how do we maintain them? We see the construction of large housing projects in the city of Chicago. Um, there's a lot of what we call urban renewal, right? In, in Chicago and other northern cities, this literally means um, taking down, destroying black neighborhoods and homes, clearing them out and putting in, for instance, new, new white businesses or something, or the loop in Chicago downtown. It's sort of these fortified boundaries. And the University of Chicago, where Milton Friedman um, is teaching and researching, they enact this policy of sort of token desegregation. They're going to allow a few black families, they'll allow a few Latinx families into these neighborhoods. But, but just, just a few, not enough to what they'll say is tip the balance to be majority black or majority brown, right? It, it'll, it's a controlled environment to show the University of Chicago is in fact integrated, right? That they, they, they enjoy the, the benefits of diversity, but not becoming too diverse. So you see this, this, this role of government, which Friedman inherently opposes, but they're intervening to maintain these racial sort of uh, covenants to maintain these racialized boundaries in the city of Chicago. So, but the whole theory that Milton Friedman is proposing at this time is that people will choose to go to whatever school they want to, and they're rational actors, that they will not act on impulse such as racism, right? And that the government isn't there to intervene. But as he's proposing this, you can clearly see that people, one, are not acting rationally, and that the government has been passing policies, they're enacting programs across the city that maintain these racial divisions. So there's really nothing equal about the choices we're making, that these cities are governed by racist policy. Yet he's out there proposing that, oh yeah, people given the choice are gonna make the right decision, the government just needs to step back. But he can see in this Petri dish of Chicago, you can see that there's tremendous conflict around where people are living, where people are going to go to school. And if you just let people act on their own, you're gonna see get situations in Chicago of mob violence, um, physical violence and assault against people of color trying to go into white spaces. So it's quite problematic from the start. And Chicago really forecasts what is to come with massive resistance, but also the decisions people are making and making them and how they're taking them. Um, now, Chicago then becomes very important because even though King, Dr. King visits Chicago in 1966 and it says it's one of the worst cities he's ever organized in terms of violence, you know, someone in Cicero throwing a brick at his head, he's, he's physically assaulted in Chicago. Um, Chicago becomes a space where it, it, it's sort of the, the, the lines are drawn when, when the, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, under the direction of Lyndon B. Johnson, wants to desegregate northern cities. Mayor Richard Daly says, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to go through desegregation like we see in the South because it's not desegregated. So what we see in Chicago, we see this resistance, this legal resistance to desegregation. You begin calling, you, you begin to talk about race without talking about race. You begin to call it natural segregation, that people are just choosing. In other words, de facto segregation. People are just choosing of their own accord to live in certain neighborhoods. But we know that's not true. But Chicago, because of its political support of Linda B. Johnson and, the, and you know, supporting, um, you know, uh, not only LBJ, but, but you know, the, the, the Northern Democrats, right, that they're given a pass. And they're given a pass because they can develop this idea of school choice. They can create a magnet school that attracts 
some white students and some black students, so it looks desegregated. They can create a voluntary desegregation plan at a very small, small case. So in other words, they could submit to the federal government these choice plans that allow a small level of desegregation, but that's enough to satisfy the federal government. And also, in the city of Chicago, it provides this legitimacy to school choice that the South can't provide. In the South, they have police blocking you know, the entrance of, of, of black students to white schools. In the North, you don't get that. It appears to be less violent. It appears on the surface to be more civil. And this really allows school choice and Milton Friedman a pass to say that school choice is a legitimate solution. And it allows Northerners in Boston and New York, Chicago, out West, to latch on to this idea and say, we want to do that. We don't want to burn crosses and black, black student entry. We want something a little more civil. We want a magnet school here and there. We want people to, quote unquote, choose where they go to school. So it, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a solution that's palpable to the American public in a way that the Southern solution. John Hale is my guest. We're discussing his book, The Choice We Face, How Segregation, Race, and Power Have Shaped America's Most Controversial Education Reform Movement. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, those dynamics that played out in Chicago, of course, played out across cities throughout the United States, particularly in the North, where, unlike the South, there was this veneer that the forces of racism were not marshaled against students of color. Tell us about the battles over busing in cities like Boston, when the focus of the civil rights movement in many ways moved north. Yeah, so the, the north in northern cities like Boston, New York, Chicago, and where, where busing is at least proposed in all of these cities, they confront busing like the southern states and the former confederacies confront, confronting desegregation policies. So busing is bringing desegregation to the north. But it's interesting because when Northerners in, in, in Chicago and Boston are talking about busing, they only talk about busing. This is you know, a rhetorical shift from talking about desegregation and racist policy. So someone can say, oh, we're against busing. We're against this proposed plan to bus my, my kid across the neighborhood to go to a desegregated school. But they'll stop, most will stop short of saying, I don't want my kid going to school with black children. They'll say, I'm against busing. I don't want to put my kid on a bus. It's going to take 45 minutes to get across the city, and, and there's, a, there's a school we can walk to less than a half mile away. So it allows people to confront desegregation in a very different way. Again, it sort of maintains this veneer that things are more civil in the North. Yet when you look at Boston, there's riots everywhere. There's white mothers throwing rocks, pelting school buses with black and brown children with rocks and Molotov cocktails. It's terrible. It's a terrible, violent scene. Yet it's portrayed as, you know, isolated incidents. It's portrayed as somehow different from the South. It's somehow a little more civil. And again, it's maybe not necessarily against black and brown children per se. It's against this policy of busing. So busing becomes, a, as we know, a highly contentious issue in the northern cities and there's a lot of political power in these cities so there's such a and, and there's footage of, of um senator edward kennedy going through the streets of boston just being being heckled and booed by his, his you know former supporters robert kennedy speaks out on the issue uh, is early in the mid-1960s northern politicians see busing as you know just the, the the massive fire that has to be put out and they don't know we, we saw this you know during the campaign joe biden right having to reckon with his past on, on busing white northern politicians are generally speaking against busing because it's not politically suitable to support busing publicly nixon right his whole camp one of his presidential campaigns are you know in some ways built against busing it's the idea of forcing forcing children in other words you know not providing choice, forcing you to get on a bus for goals of desegregation. But busing, right, becomes a focal point. And when these northern cities with this massive political base, right, are confronting it, again, school choice becomes a way to sort of 
get at a level of token desegregation and then avoiding the issue of busing. And you see this in Boston where they scale back busing. You see it in Chicago. You see it in Detroit. And what did that look like? How the federal government then sort of skates over all of this? And of course, the urban rebellions of the 60s uh, to the pressure. How does the federal government then reconcile these different dynamics and chart a course? So they chart a course. It's very uneasy. And it, it you know, it, it, it's messy. It's complicated. Boston, they allow federal um, judge Garrity, they allow judges to sort of come up with their own plan. So Boston maintains its plans, but at the same time as you notice, the urban rebellions of the North, a lot of people are watching this on TV. A lot of people are watching the busing riots unfold. A lot of whites are moving out to the suburbs and with them are bringing capital, um, social, political, and of course, economic capital out to the suburbs. And they're sort of taking that local property tax base with them. So with this massive white flight out, we're decimating these cities left behind. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But the government allows this to happen. They say, okay, you determine what you want to do. Um, keep a busing plan if you want, but, but beware. But they begin encouraging federal judges to come up with alternatives to this. And here they begin to draw on school choice. So for instance, we can look at Detroit. Uh, the state of Michigan, and specifically the city of Detroit, um, Federal Judge Roth comes up with this plan to basically desegregate the entire, not only city, but the deseg- but the suburbs of Detroit. And it's a massive proposal to, to bus children across urban-suburban lines to maintain racial balance, right? And, of course, there's a lot of backlash, uh, tremendous backlash. And the, the Supreme Court ends up overturning this plan, saying, you know, de facto segregation is a real thing. They're saying that people are just choosing to go to the suburbs, and that's their right to do so. It's not grounded in racial policy, which we now know is wrong. But they sort of shut down this plan. So the federal government, at least in the judicial system, are shutting down busing from going across district lines. You can keep this in the cities if you want. You can keep this in Louisville. You can keep this in Nashville. You can keep this in the city of Boston. You can keep this in Charlotte, North Carolina. But you can't cross district lines now because so many whites have moved out to the suburbs and a lot of them moved because they're watching busing on the news. They're watching the urban rebellion. They want out of there. And the government supports them. They say, okay, we're not going to bring this to you. You stay out in the suburbs and you're fine. So one that builds this sort of legal barrier from desegregating suburban schools. People are just moving out. Of course, they're allowed to do so, but the government's going to do nothing to actually desegregate those schools, at least with busing. At the same time that they allow this to sort of unfold and by default decimating the public school system by taking out these resources that they need, they also allow city governments to propose school choice plans that get at some level of desegregation by avoiding this sort of debacle around busing. So for instance, the city of Milwaukee, as opposed to a busing mandate, they allow uh, a few charter schools. Chicago does this well. As opposed to avoiding busing, they're going to have voluntary desegregation programs through magnet schools where they'll say, okay, here's a really specialized um, school um, in a predominantly black neighborhood that's been, you know, that's around, surrounded by white neighborhoods, but it's a black neighborhood. Let's get a few white families here to this specialized school, have a really good school. We're going to draw a few people back to the city. But the issue is they allow this to happen. On paper, there's a few schools that are desegregated, but not the entire system. So it's a sort of superficial desegregation that the government is supporting. They're not allowing busing to go in the suburbs, and then they're also creating these magnet schools. In other words, school choice. Let's give people a little more choice if they want to engage in desegregation or not. If they do want to go to desegregated school, go to magnet school, but we're not going to force you. So the government begins endorsing these various plans while also moving the country away from its commitment to desegregation. We've mainly spoken so far about the attitudes of uh, white parents and the federal government. But I wanted to ask you about how black parents, if one can generalize, 
saw these solutions or so-called solutions to segregation and to education more broadly during this period following desegregation and through the civil rights movement? Yeah, so and that's, it's such an important aspect to look at how this unfolds across um, or through and, and across racial lines in the United States. So when we begin to see freedom of choice and we begin to see busing, we begin to see magnet schools, we also, this is also coinciding with the rise the, of, um, of a black power movement, of an, uh, shifting ideology within the larger civil rights movement where people begin to question the very principles of desegregation. A lot of black activists, and in the book I highlight the work of Howard Fuller, will, and then even critical race theory founder and legal scholar Derek Bell. By the late 1960s, you know, throughout the 1970s, black activists begin to question the project of desegregation. They begin to question whether it's worth it. And this is a long question. This is an ongoing question within the black community, civil rights community throughout America. American history. W.E. Du Bois, in 1935, discusses this issue. He eventually has a falling out of the NAACP over it, where he basically says, I don't think we should be sending black kids to white schools. White teachers don't want to teach them. They're going to, to physically abuse them. They're going to, you know, um, not treat them with the love and respect that they do white children. Why are we even going into this burning fire? Desegregation integrated schools are burning fire. They're, they're taught by white, white teachers. They're controlled by white administrators. Why are we doing this? There's so much pain and trauma associated with going to white schools. Why are we doing this? So in late 1960s, 70s, early 80s, we begin to see a stronger push for black-centered or, or Afrocentric schools and people beginning to say, let's just control our own schools. Let's not even mess with desegregation. Let's just control our own schools. We see this happen in New York, Detroit, Chicago, a series of black-owned schools, whether it's by the control or, you know, influenced by the Black Panther Party, um, or whether it's, you know, controlled by a small community organization grounded in the civil rights movement. Black activists begin to say, we should control our own schools. We're not going to mess with these. Let's do that. So people begin, black activists begin to support notions of school choice because it it can theoretically empower their communities, right? It's school choice or to say, let's, in, at the time period, it's called community control. Let's have a community control school. Let's give us the choice to control our own school as opposed to putting our kids on a bus and going to a white school where no one wants our children at. So in some ways, there's this bifurcated, this, this split sort of commitment to school choice but from a black activist lens, it looks very different. School choice by the 1980s and then moving forward, right, is it can be a, a notion of civil rights. It can be a way to, to acquire finally community control. It's a way to wrestle control away from a hostile racist school board and say, no, this is going to be our own school. We're going to control it. And school choice allows that sort of privatization. So it becomes quite complicated, right, when it's no longer just a racist policy governed by whites to maintain segregation. It also becomes a way for black activists to gain control, and rightfully so, of schools in their community because white policymakers and administrators have a horrendous record and a terrible track record of governance of black schools. So in some ways, it allows black parents to sort of take control of their own John Hale is my guest. After this music break, we'll return with him. Thank you. 
You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm speaking with John Hale. He's professor of educational history at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And he is the author of The Choice We Face, How Segregation, Race, and Power Have Shaped America's Most Controversial Education Reform Movement. That's published by Beacon Press. And you can find a link to it at againstthegrain.org. So you've been tracing a history in which following desegregation, various forces in many ways start converging in favor of this notion of school choice, which in effect subsidizes private education with public money. And I wanted to ask you about how the federal report that came out in 1983, A Nation at Risk, added momentum to those forces. Yeah, so here's another idea which I've been alluding to is that since the Brown decision, that people in the United States have been slowly divesting or disinvesting in public education. They no longer see it as a viable option. They want out. They want to move to the suburbs. They want to control their own schools. But almost across the board, people see public education as not working. You know, they turn on the TV. They see busing riots. You know, they see, they feel like they're going, they're forced to go to a school that they don't want to, all for larger social projects of desegregation. No matter how you believe it or what you believe in, across the political spectrum, people are not believing or they're not supporting the way they used to support public schools. Uh, If you look at some of the Gallup polls uh, from the 1940s, for instance, American public schools were viewed quite favorably by the majority, i.e. white, um, parents across the United States. They generally supported it. By 1983, that trust in public schools, the idea that you know, going into teaching is a noble profession, that's been decimated, that's been shattered. So a nation at risk in 1983, which is a report from Terrell Bell and, and under um, the Reagan administration, is essentially saying our nation's at risk, our nation is in peril because our public schools just aren't working. So it sort of confirms what a lot of people are already thinking. But it's such a highly publicized report. Hundreds and thousands of copies are distributed across the country. The press picks it up. It's breaking news. Education's now at the front page, you know, after, you know, close to 30 years of failed, you know, desegregation attempts. Now we have just this broken system. And so one, it sort of reaffirms what people are already thinking. Yes, our, our, now our nation's at risk because our schools are so bad. So this, the report creates a sense of urgency. Something has to be done. Something has to be done. Now, what are we going to do? Well, this creates an accountability movement. Let's start holding our schools accountable once and for all. And the report starts saying, let's get back to the basics. We've been worried about civil rights and desegregation and busing, and all this has taken our attention, our resources, our political will away from just educating our children in the the basics. Let's just get back to what good schooling should be. So what this does, it moves us even further away from desegregation, just moves us away from even asking questions about civil rights and and, and racial equity. That's no really no longer on the table. It's all about how do we fix, how do we fix this broken system? And this just paves the way for more of an ideological commitment to school choice, because school choice can offer you a silver bullet, right? Well, if we create competition, if we if we leave this at the local level, if we don't worry about federal court mandates, and we don't have to worry about busing, if we just give power back to the parents, let them choose where to go to school, they know how it's going to work. Let's create more choices. So the nation at, at risk in 1983, further, I think, you know, ruins, puts in peril the reputation of public school, and it paves the way for something like school choice really to become the solution to educational reform. Well, I'd like to ask you about the role of the Democrats in school choice. School choice has been backed by both parties, but I wonder if you could tell us about school choice under Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Yeah, great question. Um, so school choice, 
with, with Bill Clinton, right, by the 1990s, right, it, it's already on, it, it's already part of education policy. People have been proposing choice now, you know, since the late 1950s, it's been around. With busing, Northern Democrats, right, uh, Northern Democrats, particularly from large urban centers, right, support this idea of magnet schools. They don't like busing. They support the idea of magnet schools. They've already acclimated. They're used to this idea of providing choice. And after all, we're in the United States, right? Milton Friedman at this point has a series on capitalism and freedom and, and PBS. He's a popular um, spokesperson, right, for libertarian values. It's capitalism, right? We're defeating... Uh, you know, in the 80s, USSR, this is capitalism, this is free choice, this is economic freedom, this is what we do in the United States. It's an idea that resonates across the political spectrum. And Democrats, under Bill Clinton, can take a, take this idea of school choice and really run with it. And let's not forget that Bill Clinton, coming from the South, right, is inheriting this problematic history of trying to avoid desegregation, but seeing that a better solution than, than putting police in front of the schoolhouse door is to come up with this voluntary desegregation solution that a magnet school can offer. And then by the 1990s, you begin to get this proposal of charter schools. Not quite like a magnet school, it's still a public school, but you can offer a highly specialized science curriculum or math curriculum or arts-based humanities curriculum with a charter school. Well, that sounds great to Bill Clinton and the Democrats. It's not forcing people to desegregate. It's investing in good innovation becomes a buzzword. Good innovative ideas to get kids back in public schools. And everyone's excited about it. Under Bill Clinton, we begin to have the first federal policies pass uh, and, and, and financial support, federal financial support for charter schools. 1990, 1992, we, we begin seeing the first federal legislation that is donating federal monies to charter schools. And this, right, is increasing, finally, the commitment of the federal government to school choice. They're saying, let's create more charter schools. This is a great competition. It's an idea that everybody can buy in by the 1990s. And then with, you mentioned Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, he brings with him, just like Bill Clinton brought with him, um, and he brought Lamar Alexander with him, Bill, I'm sorry, and then um, President Obama is bringing Arnie Duncan from the city of Chicago. These are secretaries of education that are wholly supportive of school choice. Arnie Duncan created, converted Chicago public schools into a choice system. He thinks it's working. He's working uh, with Mayor Daley about you know, they're calling them renaissance schools. Let's reform and transform the city of Chicago through more charter schools and more choice. So he's bringing this idea to Washington. So by the time we get to President Obama, we see strong support for, for school choice among Democrats, largely forgetting this racist history and largely ignoring the project to desegregate schools and instead supporting this, this very libertarian notion of school choice. And they're bringing that to Washington, and they're just making it more popular across the political spectrum. Well, taking things then to the present, how do you evaluate the impact of charter schools and more broadly this idea of school choice on American education at this point? It, it, it's a really tough question. I think there's so many ways to evaluate it, because we can look at the creator reports, for instance, coming out of Stanford, the sort of standardized test-based assessment or quantitative assessment of how school choice is working. You can measure the uh, test scores of uh, students in, in charter schools versus traditional public schools. And you see, you know, a significant, um, okay, depending on how you measure it, number of students performing better in some quantitative measures in charter schools and traditional public schools. But the problem is when you rely on quantitative assessment, you're breaking down the quality of the educational experience to a number, to a test score. My child acquired this much knowledge in math or literacy, and this is what the school means. But education is much more than that. Education has never just been about a test score, and it never should be. The history of education in the United States is one about creating um, a, a, a commitment to our democratic ideals. It's this commitment to the public good, right? It's public schools for the public good. 
So I think if you move away from the quantitative assessment and begin asking questions about to what extent are our schools serving the public good, we get a very different answer. If we ask that question, we can see that school choice and charter schools have increased privatization. It has facilitated disinvestment in the public schools. It has invited further division, right? So by that matrix, we can see school choice is not doing that, that well. At the same time, if we go back to civil rights activists who are embracing school choice as a long struggle to sort of control their own schools or to ask what's best for black children and children of color in these United States, that's a very different question as well. You can't answer that with a quantitative assessment about a test score. That's a very different question. If you ask that question, you can look at the school prison nexus, you can look at public um, underinvestment in public schools, you can look at school resource officers, you can look at tracking and special education that disproportionately put black children and students of color in these programs. You get a very different matrix and a way to understand what's going on in schools today. Is it too early to calculate how COVID has changed American education? I mean, it's hard to think of anything in, in the recent past, in recent decades, as disruptive as COVID has been to education. And of course, there has been a whole push toward virtual schooling. Can we, at this point, draw any conclusions about how COVID has change schooling and how it might remain changed? It, it's too late to come up with, with a sort of general sort of statement about the new directions, but it is you can state with certainty that COVID has increased a commitment to the idea of school choice and notions such as homeschooling. That parents have a choice, parents' voice must be heard, to, to whatever relationship to the public good, that COVID has increased, has proliferated our commitment to providing more choices to all families across the United States. That it has, we've seen a dramatic enrollment in homeschooling, for instance, that we've never seen before, a, a new commitment to it. We've seen legislators propose COVID relief funding for the funding of charter schools, voucher programs, and even tuition programs down south, that we've seen an increased commitment to school choice among parents. And it's alarming because when you hear it spoken in, throughout the media, for instance, or local school board meetings, we do not hear any questions about commitment to racial equity, to, elite, to um, eradicating the school prison nexus. We don't hear these questions. We only hear again, more about providing choice. How do we get the best out of this system for our individual advantage? So it's been nothing but exacerbating the sort of tension we already Well, let me end by asking you how you think one can bolster public schools, given this history that you've described, and given how, since as you write about, since the upheavals of the civil rights period, public schools have become increasingly underfunded and, and unequal. Well, we live in a country where education is not protected by our constitution. It is not a federally protected right. We have access to schools that protect that, but we have, they have no right to a quality education. So we, we have a 50 different ways for each state of, of, of providing education, it's very different. So what that means is that one solution is to, we have to think we have, to, we have to look at our local school, and it's so important that regardless of our race, we have to identify and find those community advocates and activists who have been in traditional public schools and have a history of it, and listen to what they are saying in terms of what needs to be done. And this is going to be black community organizers, Latinx community organizers, those who have been historically disenfranchised by this public school system. It's time we stop, listen, and create policies around those who have been attending public schools and who understand the importance of education for uplifting racialized communities and those who have been historically marginalized. 
if we can get that question right about how do we truly reach those who have been historically disadvantaged in this country, if we can answer that question, we can improve education for everybody. And that's what we have to do. We have to stop thinking just individually and really think about how public schools, or private schools for that matter, are treating black families and families of color because that is the question that we need to be asking, especially as we come out of COVID. How are we going to really address this public school question and really, and once and for all, provide a strong quality public education that uplifts those who have been historically marginalized? That, that, that's where we need to go at this point in time. John Hale, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I truly appreciate it. John Hale is professor of educational history at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His books include Freedom Schools and most recently, which we've been discussing today, The Choice We Face, How Segregation, Race, and Power Have Shaped America's Most Controversial Education Reform Movement. And that book is published by Beacon Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to it. And you've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.